Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of five issues for just £10. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to The Critic podcast. As the literary world comes out of its COVID-induced hibernation, The Critic's deputy editor, Graham Stewart, discusses with the writer and journalist Alexander Lahman the merits of celebrity authors and literary book prizes. Alexander Lahman, you have uh, contributed in the new edition of The Critic, um, the first in a new column, A Man About Town, um, where you dive deeply and also superficially and comically and seriously over the uh, panoply of literary and cultural events. Um, I, I mean, you can't have been much of a man about town in, in, in recent months. I mean, there, there have been no cultural events to attend. Has it been for you? What, 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 have, what have you missed doing and what are you looking forward to now that uh, uh, things are opening up? Well, Graham, um, I've, I've been more of a man about bedroom and man about sitting room over the last few months. And I've watched an awful lot of television and listened to an awful lot of music, but I've really missed actually interacting with other people. And I was in London for the first time in months last week. And there was this slight sense when I was approaching people in public of, have I actually been house trained? I mean, have I been domesticated so much that I don't actually know what to say to people? So there is a slight concern that when the next book launch or the next party happens, that I'll be in a room full of similarly socially awkward people and that we'll all be twitching rather than actually talking to one another. Well, I mean, my, my experience of, of uh, literary lunches and book launches are they are uh, a, a bit of a mixture of writers who are actually quite introverted and, and uh, you know, they, they live on the page, but, but not, in, uh, not, in, not in real life. And, and those who are completely extrovert and uh, are life and soul of the party. Uh, have, you, have, you, have you missed that? Are you looking forward to a nice warm glass of white wine? A nice lukewarm glass of white wine in Daunts at half past six on a Tuesday is always one of my favourite things in London. But what I'm wondering, actually, is what is going to be the first major book launch? Because I know that some writer friends of mine who haven't had launches in the last couple of years are saying, oh, we'll do one for the paperback or, oh, I'll do one anyway. But actually, the reality of it is, is that it's quite hard to organise a book launch. I mean, I found that I was talking to my publisher about doing something for my last book, The Crowning Crisis months and months before it came out. And then of course it became incredibly clear that nobody would be doing anything come July. So I'm not sure much will be happening until until autumn actually, because I I mean, I can't see anyone any, trying to organize anything until at least June the 21st. I mean, traditionally July and August are quite quiet months of a publishing calendar while people go on holiday. Although this year I'm sure it'll be staycationing rather than going overseas. But I'm hoping that come the autumn, there will actually be something of a, a return to the literary life of London, that there will be book launches, there will be in-person events. Because to be honest with you, I mean, I say this somewhat ironically because we are doing this over Zoom, but I've got rather bored of actually talking to people in the industry in a Zoom conversation because it doesn't feel the real thing. I mean, I was talking to my agent the other day and we were waving gin and tonics to each other on, on the screen and it, all, it just all felt a bit bizarre and a bit peculiar. I mean, what you want to be doing is you want to be actually you know, nudging elbows with somebody or and being able to engage, make eye contact and actually have a man-to-man -man conversation or man-to-woman, woman-to-woman or any of the other permutations that you find in all of 
these literary gatherings. But now I'm very excited about it because I think that literary life, especially London literary life, and actually where I live in Oxford, literary life here as well, it's very much a social one. I mean, of course, you do get people who want to hide in their burrows and never emerge, but many more people do actually want to come out and talk to other writers, because speaking for myself, I mean, I've spent months more or less locked away working on a new book, and I'm very excited about my new book, but I also like to be able to talk to people and actually engage and interact again. Well, if June the 21st, let alone the autumn, is when the earliest we might expect book uh, launches and literary parties to start, that will be about two, three weeks after surely the great literary event of the year, perhaps the decade, which is the launch of Meghan Markle's eagerly anticipated uh, children's book, uh, The Bench, which is, uh, I think, due for publication for end of first week of, of June. Uh, do you feel the, the excitement that the rest of us feel, Alexander? Graham, I feel rather like the audience must have done the first night the Hamlet was put on. I mean, I cannot imagine anything in my lifetime, including publication of my own books, quite comparing to a sense of exhilaration, surprise, the edge of seat suspense, indeed, that's going to happen. Because the, the, the artiste formerly known as Meghan Markle, now Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex, is publishing her first book. I mean, it's a... It's a revelatory step. And certainly, I mean, I applaud her because it's very tough to get your first book published these days. I mean, I know many, many aspirant children's writers have taken years, I mean, literally years to try and get published. And of course, the thing I would say about La Markle and her new career is that on the one hand, it's very easy to make fun of her. Doesn't mean we shouldn't do so, but it's also an exceptionally easy thing to take that kind of pomposity and that kind of emptiness. But what really annoys me is that I realised last year when I was writing a piece for Artillery Row actually that the celebrification of children's literature is actually the worst thing that's happened to children's publishing since it existed. Because what it's done is it's created in the industry a kind of two-tier system. You have good writers, in some cases brilliant writers, who either can't get published these days or having to publish very mediocre, very box-ticking books. But all the money, the marketing, the publicity, for editorial, for advances has all gone to a range of celebrities. And I mean, any bookshop you go to, you see these people, most of whom, I mean, not all, most of whom are slightly washed up, slightly past their prime. And they've all had these books commissioned by editors who in some cases are just desperate to get in with a comedian they used to find funny or a TV star that was big in their childhood. But in other cases, there's a belief that somebody like Meghan Markle is going to sell so many copies of a book that it's worthwhile getting into the Meghan Markle business purely to have her on your books. Now, on the one hand, I'm sure the book's going to be absolutely dreadful. I'm sure it's going to be badly written, badly conceived, and probably badly illustrated as well. But I keep an open mind until I have it in, in my hands. I shall be objective and I shall judge it the same way that I judge everything else. But what makes me quite angry is the fact that it's not like the J.K. Rowling effect. When, when Harry Potter was a massive hit, Bloomsbury was able to transform itself from a relatively mid-range publisher to quite a major for a few years because the sheer amount of money they had coming in meant they could take risks on other authors. They could have children's authors perhaps they wouldn't have published before, unknown figures who they could take risks on because they had the financial safety of the Harry Potter behemoth. It hasn't worked like that since. I mean, the trickle-down effect is not happening. And that makes me quite angry, actually, because 
what you're doing is you, you are creating this world where you've only got to them that have shall be given. And I think that's incredibly unfair. And actually, I'm surprised more people don't talk about this with, with more anger because I grew up, like I think many children who have pursued careers subsequently in the arts and in reading, with you know, a fascination for the kind of literature that was aimed at children. And obviously I can cite the usual suspects, for Jennings, for Biggles, for Bunters, for Just Williams and so forth. But then other things like Helen Creswell, the Bagforce books. And those are all things that I really loved. And I can't see that any of them would get published these days because obviously they're not box ticking enough, they're not politically correct enough, they're not woke enough, whatever else. But what we have instead is, I mean, David Williams is of course the absolute archbishop of this, but we have many others as well. We have these figures who varying degrees of talent, but they are the ones who have completely canonized the industry. And so, yes, I mean, I look at Meghan Markle's book with a certain side eye of contempt, but I also fear this is probably the latest and most high profile example in how the entire industry is cannibalizing itself. So but, I I mean, publishing is a, is a business, ultimately, and uh... You, know, you, you suggested that, that Megan's book is likely to do well, as it probably is, um, you know, on the same principle that you know, the success of J.K. Rowling uh, helped Bloomsbury take risks with authors that might not previously have had the resources to take that risk with. You know, at, at the end of the day, if, uh, if it's bringing in, if Megan is bringing in uh, good money into the publishing industry, uh, surely some of that will be spread around riskier texts, or is there... Is it your, your sense that actually uh, that that's not happening? The, the, the market is just becoming uh, more risk averse, even where, when it has money to, to uh, take a punt? I think you've just made the argument. I think you say that publishing is a business, but ultimately people are not interested in nurturing talent the way that they once were. Because, and this is equally true of nonfiction, it's equally true of you know, literary fiction, that it used to be that you would take three or four books to make your name and to actually start to build a reputation. But I said it, it was the case for me. It was my fourth book that actually people began to read but actually started to build a proper reputation from it. But unfortunately these days, you, most publishers do not have the time or the patience to be able to take those kind of risks, if you like, with their authors. And so it's very much your first book has to be a big hit. But unless you're very, very lucky and you have a very good marketing campaign behind you, the only way that's going to happen in most cases is because you're a celebrity and you've made your fame in another sphere. And I think it will probably happen, I mean, the next thing I'm looking at is the massive, massive success of Richard Osman's Thursday Murder Club means that celebrity crime writers are going to start popping up in about a year's time. I mean, we'll see, yeah, probably next summer onwards, we're going to see a lot of people, I think, a lot less talented than Richard Osman writing crime novels, which are being published because they're well-known figures. And then you start to think, but where does it end? I mean, do we have a situation whereby just because you're good at presenting something on the TV or good at singing or whatever else, you're also an author as well? And I would say, well, no, you're not. Because to be an author, to especially to be a successful author, you've got to have a lot of very different skills, which are not the skills you need to have to be successful in a lot of celebrity-focused areas and so I think to myself it's really sad to see how the entire industry has been taken over by this I think short-sighted urge to make money which is understandable but also to put these famous faces and famous names out there and I just I look at it all and I think to myself 
this is not good for the future of the industry. This is not how these things should, because no one's going to remember any of this stuff. I mean, the David Williams books are not great literature. I mean, say what you like about Harry Potter, and I have done on occasion, but they are at least a consistent, coherent, imaginative world based on, you know, a, an author's idea. They're not merely an exercise in pandering to a children's market. And that's the crucial difference between, a, a, you know, a good, if not great book, and frankly, mediocre books. And I think that's a problem that we now see. We just see there's an era upon us where it's very easy for writers who are at the bottom of the food chain to look up enviously at writers at the top of the food chain and say, I wish I had their fame and success. But it's quite another thing to be looking at somebody who was already famous and successful and think, so ultimately your entire career is just going to be one long exercise in patronage. So I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I think that there are other examples of this in literary fiction and non-fiction and so on, but this is by far the most egregious. But the other thing I would say is writing a children's book is phenomenally hard. I mean, if you look at the wealth of great literature, you know, the Alice in Wonderlands, the Wind of the Willows that have been written, they are works that can take their place by any other great book of their era or generation. And the idea that somehow a ghost-written celebrity book, for something that's been probably tossed off in an afternoon, is somehow comparable to this is simply not true. But you're creating almost a kind of X factor idea. You're telling somebody, get famous doing something else first, then go off and write your children's book. And you think to yourself, children's books are hard. I mean, a good children's book should take years to write. It should take years to think about. And I think that actually the idea you can just do these things as a hobby cheapens the whole idea and cheapens a lot of people's real achievements and real skills. Well, uh, one measure of quality rather than celebrity is, of course, the, the book prize, the literary fiction prize. Um, Man Booker obviously has been the, 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 uh, the most famous in recent years, but there's also the Women's Prize for Fiction, and that will be announced uh, in, in, in July. Um, <laughs> Women's Prize for Fiction always gets the, the inevitable uh, you know, kind of blokish response, you know, when are they going to have a, a prize for blokes? Um, is there anything in that, though? I mean, I mean why, why, why not? Uh, uh, you know, we've established the principle of uh, you know, a, a prize uh, based on sex, so, so why not a, a prize for men? Well, it's been interesting, actually, because two long pieces, one by James Marriott in The Times last year, but one more recently in The Observer by the critic Johanna, Johanna Thomas Corr, both had as their central question, why aren't men writing literary fiction? And the answer comes back fairly bluntly, because nobody would publish it. And that's quite an interesting idea that you can see that there is an industry which is very much geared towards women. I mean, women are, let's be honest, the main buyers of fiction. There are people who fiction is mainly aimed at. It's women who work mainly in editorial. It's women who work mainly in marketing. It's essentially, it's a female dominated industry. And that is not going to change. I mean, there are of course, you know, male novelists, just male editors and male publishers, but you are never going to have anything like a 50-50 split. Where the Women's Prize started was there was a feeling in the 80s, there were all these writers like the Martin Amises, even the Kingsley Amises, who were having it too easy. There was just too much patronage directed towards this white public school, Oxbridge educated man, who was essentially able to do what he liked and to win prizes and the women were being forced out. 
that is no longer the case. I mean, publishing in the last 30 years has had a kind of shift whereby now male writers are the ones who are being forced out. Now, you see, there's not a lot of sympathy for the white public school male novelist, which is to be under, understandable. But what I find very interesting is that in their rush to discriminate against all men, this means that a working class writer, a black writer, a trans writer, has also, have also been cast out by the same reckoning, which of course means you can now take the argument that, okay, fine, people like me shouldn't be allowed to publish literary novels. That's fine. You know, we had it our own way for generations. But if you've got some working class black boy from Tower Hamlets, who's got a brilliant idea to write a book about racial discrimination, he's going to run, run into a problem that he is being discriminated against but, but not because of the colour of his skin, but because of his sex or his gender, whichever way you want to put it. Is there, is there any evidence that, that that is true? Well, there's people who would argue that it's a bit like when I wrote my, my book Restoration about the Great Fire of London, one of the things that people always said is, oh, only, only six people died in the Great Fire of London because there's only records of, you know, five or six people having lost their families. Like, yes, but all the poor people were illiterate. So all of their stories we wouldn't know about because they've never written down. And I think it's a bit like this now, but if you are some brilliant boy or brilliant young man who has this story to tell, the whole industry is so based around gatekeepers and based around people trying to publish people like them, that actually it's very hard for these voices to be heard and it's very hard for these people to break through. And ultimately you have to ask yourself, if you decide that men can't publish books because of top toxic masculinity because the male voice has been heard too much okay fine but by that you are also saying that the male voice is one entity it's a bit like saying that you know the chiclet that you would read by someone like Jojo Moyes or her ilk is going to be the same as Sally Rooney and it's not and if you were to try and argue that over oh, women are writing about the same things then you'd be accused I think rightly of being grotesquely sexist but what we have in the publishing industry is that nobody's very interested in hearing the male voice anymore. And certainly, I mean, the furore about Philip Roth's bug for Blake Bailey being accused of sexual assault and having his book, quite literally, <laughs> having his pu publication scrapped and cancelled in America, you see how little it takes for the male voice, the male or four-wheel voice, to be seen as almost a threatening one. So... The idea that we have a female-only literary prize, but not a male-only literary prize, I think even 10 years ago, that was something that everyone would have been completely okay with, and there would have been no question whatsoever of, of the opposite. But now, I'm, I mean, I suggest rather a satirical version of this in the new issue of The Critic, but I have given it some thought as to what a male-only literary prize would actually consist of. What, what, what would be the Alexander Lahman prize for men's fiction. What, 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 are, what, are, what are the criteria? Well, actually, I mean, my own criteria would be to find something that, that actually rewards funny literature, because I had a bit of a to-do with um, Nina Stibicup, actually, last year, because I reviewed one of her books, which had won Bollinger Everyman Prize for Humour, and I said it wasn't funny. And she was deeply offended by this, very angry. And of course, you know, she has a right to be offended, just as I didn't find her book remotely funny. What I would like to see is humorous literature being given more 
as a platform and taken more seriously because at the moment a lot of literary fiction is not funny I mean, I remember watching the TV adaptation of Normal People last year, and the campus novel has this great tradition of humour. And I mean, if you look at Lucky Jim, you look at um, Malcolm Bradbury's History Man, you even look at Tom Sharp and Wilt. You've got these wonderfully observed depictions of these farcical goings on. That's even probably gone to Tom Sharp and Porterhouse Blue. And Normal People presents a love affair between this, this young couple, and it treats it as seriously as if it's the Bible. And I couldn't help thinking, why is this the only way of presenting this story and why can't somebody write? I suppose David Nichols tried it with one day and that is the more entertaining way of doing it. But to me, it's something that it's always been, I would hesitate to say that men are better comic writers than women. I mean, if you've read Nancy Mitford, if you've read Stella Gibbons, you know that not to be true. But I feel that comic writing is somewhere where men and women can meet on an equal playing field. And that's something perhaps that no publishers will touch these days, because what you don't want to be doing is publishing a novel which is seen as offensive and it's going to shock people. Because it, it used to be, I mean, if you look at the Satanic Verses, that's a book that, okay, there were protests, people were killed. But it also meant that Rushdie was going to become a major literary figure forever because of a sheer amount of publicity. Whereas now, you look at Blake Bailey in America, the Philip Roth biographer, he's not going to publish another, another book. There is no possible way that you're going to, your career will survive something like that. So I don't know what actually I could see happening in terms of a prize for men's literature, because if, if somebody was to come forward and fund it, a lot of publishers, and probably a lot of orphans as well, would simply refuse to have their books entered into it. And so inevitably, if you're only dealing with half a dozen publishers and half a dozen authors, the same people are going to win year in, year out. But then you run the risk of being accused of essentially signing up to a kind of a bigoted and misogynistic organisation. So I think that the problem has always been people are too absolute about stuff and people need to be able to have conversations and discussions rather than simply putting their fingers in their ears and shouting sexism, bigotry or any of the other buzzwords they've found that day. Well, we, we will leave it there for now, Alexander Larman. It looks like your uh, uh, prize for men's uh, um, comic writing is, is not going to get off the ground, or if it is, there's uh, only going to be about five contestants, the same five contestants every year. But uh, um, there we are. I should uh, maybe start writing some comic fiction, and uh, my time will come once every five years. Uh, Alexander Larman, Man About Town, thank you very much indeed. Graham, it's been a pleasure. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.